those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome everyone to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi. And I want to actually shout out my dear love, Maureen, who is under the weather today and really regrets that she can't join us because we have some incredibly special guests today whose praises we have both been singing constantly, just constantly flowing out of our mouths. So welcome the Wrong Boys, aka Sean and Aaron from the Seriously Wrong podcast. Uh, thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm, uh, this is Sean. Uh, yeah, uh, it's great to be here. It's a, what, what an intro. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, we're so thrilled to have you. I mean, as I said, I've been basically shouting out Seriously Wrong every minute or so for months now. So uh, I would think that most of our listeners should be pretty well-versed in you know your entire back catalog by now. But uh, for any late adopters, we'll call them, uh, could you perhaps introduce yourselves and uh, and tell people a bit about your show? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, like I said, I'm Sean, um, and co-host here is Aaron. I'm also a co-host. We're both equal in that. But we do a show uh, called Seriously Wrong. We've done it for like a couple years now, and it's a utopian comedy podcast. It's about perfecting the world, but not really taking it too seriously. But we wanted to aspire to to actually sort of describe utopia and make a hopeful political thing that's funny, and also try to like find ways to talk through some of the problems in left-wing politics and like come to conclusions about how to like best move forward mm -hmm. yeah no we absolutely love the show and yeah i mean you don't take it seriously in the sense that you have a lot of fun and there's just great comedy throughout but it also is a serious show because the 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 topics that you cover are so incredibly important and i feel like you both offer offer a lot of really great insight that can be used practically as we move towards this yeah, either utopia or complete barbarism we shall see but but yeah honestly can't recommend the show enough we love finding it because um listeners of our show will know that we've been on a real uh, uh you know also trying to imagine utopia i guess um we read emergent strategy by adrian marie brown and just got really inspired to try and reclaim radical creativity and to to really offer people like a, a glimpse of what could be possible instead of just everything that's wrong with the here and now which is kind of easy to point out anyway yeah love the show everyone should check them out so we're going to uh we have a special treat in that sean has come up with some hopeful headlines for the future so carrying on our, our hopeful headline tradition so we'll get to that in just a minute i just want to shout out the patrons so thank you so much to Ariel Rowland, Christian Otten, Lana H, and Calvin Stark. I may have already shouted out Calvin, but here, here, here we are again. Shout out Calvin Stark. And our content is always free, so we rely on the generous donations of our patrons. So if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash veganvanguard or make a one-time donation on our website via PayPal. It's veganvanguardpodcast.com. So, with that out of the way, I would like to welcome Sean to present his hopeful headlines for the future. And for anyone, if this is your first episode listening, um, we like to start off the show with hopeful headlines for the future. So these are headlines that you would see in the newspaper or whatnot if the world that you want to come about actually came into being. So let's hear what Sean has to, has to give us. So for these headlines, I also I know which news outlet made them. And so 
that's relevant. So this first one's from CNN. Uh, it's a web exclusive, but they did, <laughs> they did cover it on the on on TV as well. Choo choo! Does the global train come to your neighborhood? Yes, it does. <laughs> oh my god, I love that. Uh, New York Times. Uh, this is a, from a future year. Front cover: the don't the drone strike to end all drone strikes. Drones destroy drone factory. War is over. <laughs> oh my god, that that is awesome! Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the only drone factory has been destroyed. <laughs> yeah, there was just one big drone. They're just constantly sending drones out, and then eventually. We got them to turn around. Some people said we shouldn't use the master's tools to take down the tool shed. We were like, no, we're going to drone the drones. Right. <laughs> we're going to drone the droners. Yes. We got wise to it. Uh, from BuzzFeed, top 10 things to do with your new weekly paid day off. Ooh. Just one? Just just. Just one weekly day off. Yeah, but it's also part of a. It's also part of a larger. You know, there's more vacation days. Obviously, there's mm, also mm-hmm. there's that really great Jacobin article last year about having a year off every seven years. I think mm. like we got to incorporate all of these shorter know, work days. Shorten the work days. Give one of the work yes. days paid, even though you don't have to work, uh, like a statutory holiday. Mm. You know, just a couple holidays a month. Uh, on top yes. of that, like just various celebrations of um, life, like good things. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, plus, rent day is so stressful. You got to have that off paid. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> and and rent paid too. <laughs> uh, and the next headline: breaking news: rent abolished. Ooh. All housing is free. Hell yeah! You still get the day off though. Still in, get the day off. Yeah. I mean, it's grandfathered. Yes. <laughs> it's now a solemn day to remember how bad rent was. Oh, yes. Oh, these kids today, they've never had to pay rent. They don't know what it's like. <laughs> they don't respect <laughs> rent day. They... <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes, that is, that is the world that I need to live in. I actually also want to read that Jacobin article about a year off every seven years. I feel like that is mandatory. Maybe even five years. Maybe even every other year. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but no, reach for the stars. So yeah, thank you so much. Those were amazing. Um, I, I love starting off the podcast that way. So as you have described your show uh, as a, what was it, a utopian leftist comedy, I wanted to ask you how you see the purpose of utopia or what is the purpose to you of utopia for leftist organizing? Well, I think like a lot of the time, the criticism of utopia or utopianism is that it's like frivolous and that you're kind of sitting around daydreaming about this better future rather than actually doing it that the like daydreaming becomes the action that makes you feel good about yourself good enough that you can keep existing in society and it's more of a coping mechanism than it is something that actually helps to change the world and so I think that could be true. It may, like it probably is true for some people or some of the time in some senses. But like on our show, we really try to focus also on not just the end point, but on the next steps. But if you want to know what the next steps are, you have to know what direction you want to go in. So you got to be kind of like pointing 
to the horizon saying like, you know, that's where we want to go. But at the same time, you also have to be looking at what's right in front of you and what challenges are right in front of you and what can we do now that might get us closer to that endpoint. So you need to do both. Like you need to be both spending time like thinking through what it is we actually want and what that will actually look like, both so that we have the inspiration to actually want to go there and that we know where we're going. But we also have to be looking at like the thorny bushes in front of us and like, how do we protect ourselves to get through them? How do we figure out the next thing right now? What are the pragmatic steps to like a new plateau or a utope on the way to a utopia so that like the the vision of a utopian future becomes like a stimulant towards doing positive actions in the world right now rather than like the sedative the opiate that lets you comfortably do nothing as i think is like one of the criticisms people have yeah and in utopia it's less of a hammer and it's more of a compass it's like setting a, a direction like we still need hammers we still need to get really pragmatic and i think like the the pragmatics like aaron was saying is is really connected to our idea of the future another point i'd really i think is an important part about utopianism as a strategy is that politics is hyperstitional and that it means that there's there's an element of self-fulfilling prophecy in politics there would never be a weekend unless people dared to have the utopian dream of saying hey maybe we shouldn't work all the time like maybe we should have some set days off where we don't have to work maybe we shouldn't be working for 12 hours at the time these were utopian cloud cuckoo land ideas things are the way they are you have to work 12 hours a day you got to work six or seven days a week that is how it is. But people sort of put out a, a, we'd call it a utope. It's like a mini utopia. It's like a little piece of utopia in a pragmatic sense coming forward of like people being able to leave work after eight hours or, I mean, in the future, four hours, we're hopeful. Yeah. And then the other thing too, is that if we want to buy in for a mass movement, if we want people to buy in to put their labor and energy and time and put themselves and their family at risk to challenge power structures, we're going to, we got to sort of tell them where we're going. We can't be like, it's going to be really great. Just bet your life on it. It's not right. That's, it's actually unethical. So you need to have utopianism. And I think the sort of anti, there's like a long historical uh, sort of like leftist infighting sectarian thing around uh, utopianism versus pragmatism and all that stuff. And as far as I'm concerned, that question's like already resolved. It's just ancient history. It's like you need you need an interplay between both. Mm hmm. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I, I like that idea of like the little utope that, that people are putting out and then moving towards that. And it's true that there's so many things that we have now that ages ago, people would have just thought, oh, that's impossible. You know, things are the way they are. And that's really what the system wants us to believe. Like it wants us to become demoralized. It wants us to think, well, yeah, things are shit, but that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. That's just the, you know, the rational facts of, of the matter, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, they, they want to prevent us from imagining the future for some reason. Right. Like, why do they want to, to prevent us from uh, imagining the future if imagining the future runs contrary to our goals? I just don't, I don't buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I completely agree that, you know, if we want to have buy in for a mass movement, then we need to actually present them with, you know, we, when we say another world is possible, we have to say more than just, 
yeah, you know, it'll be, I don't know, uh, we're going to democratize the means of production. People are like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> and we're like, don't worry about it. Like, we'll figure it out once the revolution happens. Uh, you know, people, yeah, people aren't going to be very energized by that. And I think also just as an activist, like I was kind of thinking the other day, uh, or I was kind of getting a bit down the other day and kind of thinking about how my mind has been so colonized by this system that sometimes I find it difficult to really think of what I would actually want the world to look like in, in, in a way that is, is not just really vague, it actually has some kind of form to it about how things could work and how we might be able to get there, right? And I think that as an activist it's really, really, really important that we ourselves actually just within our own hearts and minds know what we're, we're walking towards and that we're actually really excited about it. Um, and that we're not just walking away from something that we hate, but we're actually, yeah, we're excited to move forward. I think there was this quote, uh, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it was about utopia and kind of the purpose of it. And it was like, you know, I walk towards the horizon, the horizon, moves further away I walk closer to it it moves even further still but uh, I guess you know the whole point of of utopia is just to keep us moving forward so yeah so I really like that and I like how you actually do that dreaming so the next question I, I get this question a lot just kind of the idea like how do you keep going like how do you keep utopian dreaming in this world that feels so bleak like we have the Australian bushfires going on right now we had a whole bunch of people voting for Boris Johnson or you know even Justin Trudeau like we can't even elect a like a soak dam uh so how, how do you do it how do you keep the utopian dreaming in these these end times I think a strong utopianism is always going to be rooted in trying to acknowledge the conditions that we've inherited. Like we've got an inherited situation that's outside of our control that is going horribly wrong in, in all these different ways. Over the last 10 years, we've seen, you know, the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere go from 390 to 415, which is a big deal. <laughs> uh, we, we, we see like democratic institutions that are either stagnant or declining. Uh, these democratic institutions were never even like super democratic in the first place. Mm -hmm. And the history of like colonialism and the history of the transatlantic slave trade and the hit, like all these histories are still like really present with us in our institutions. And they're not ancient history. But I, I don't see that as being in contradiction with utopia to acknowledge those things and look at those things or look at and I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being upset when the good guys lose an election or what seems like the good guys. <laughs> the fact of the matter is about elections. Like I work in elections. I've worked several campaigns over the last couple of years. And the vast majority of people who run for election lose. Um, it's just like a material, it's a zero sum game. So most elections are already lost. And then you stack the system where there's for every Bernie Sanders, you have, you have 10,000 Justin Trudeaus, you've got 10,000 Boris Johnsons, the, the, the game stacked against us in all sorts of ways. So it's always when it comes to electoral politics and participation, which I do endorse, we just, ha we have to sort of acknowledge that it's always going to be an uphill battle. And that losing is the default, like we can celebrate when we win. And like, don't, I'm not saying don't be sad when we lose, but just get used to it like it's it happens all the time everywhere for most candidates and most elections get used to it it's the default seven people run for a seat one person wins it's math yeah i think additionally there's like a psychological element here like this question to me almost sounds more like i'm depressed and how do i keep going in a world that that is so fucked up uh, and the world is really fucked up and a lot of people are really depressed. 
And that's not an easy question. Like, how do you maintain, like, thinking that a utopia is even possible when it's not present in the world in front of us? And, like, that's going to take introspection or therapy or getting the right kind of medication. Like, that is part of this as well. But, like, I just wanted to mention that first because like I can offer logical arguments as to why it's a good idea to keep utopian dreaming, even though it seems pointless, but the logical arguments aren't going to help you if there's something else going on, if there's something deeper and more emotional going on. Mm -hmm. But like logically, if, (laughs) if, if, if we were winning all these things, if we could elect sock Dems easily and we were in a, a much more sock Dem world, then we would be focused on the next thing that we're failing at, like the next mm-hmm. problem that we haven't solved already. And we would be thinking, oh, we can't even do X, whatever the next X is. So, so that's just natural. That's like once something is set in and we've achieved that, then that's baseline and you don't even really need to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. So, so if we'd won on these things already, we wouldn't need to dream about a better future because we'd already be there. So the reason that we have to keep utopian dreaming in a world that's so fucked up is because the world is so fucked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I really, really <laughs> love that. Those are great points. And yeah, I think the question is kind of more along the lines of how do you not let, you know, cynicism completely take over when, you know, you're, you're sitting there and you're, you're, you have your utopian dreams and then the world just continually disappoints you. Right. But I also feel as though, when I, if if you just dwell in that cynicism and dwell in that despair, um, I think it really, it it's really demotivating. It, it makes you kind of inert uh, and, and scared to move forward. But when I actually start to imagine the world that I want to see, even, even just like a small utopia, like the idea of, you know, moving a bit out of the city with a bunch of comrades and like living in a more kind of intentional community or, you know, I don't know, you know, participating more in like the solidarity economy, even these small steps, when I think about those things, those things are really energizing to me. And those make me actually feel like, yeah, that that sounds exciting. That sounds like something I would want to do. So I think it's important just even to, as a way to keep yourself motivated and keep yourself um, from dwelling in this, in the cynicism that can lead to despair, which I think leads to um, inaction. Yeah. Also, like we think on like the time scale we exist in like day to day month to month year to year and like it really makes rational sense to infer from your experience that nothing ever changes and nothing ever gets better because you've been alive what like two three four decades i don't know how old the audience is but like we have nobody's been alive for that long people don't live for that long uh, but mm-hmm. things do change and often for the better often for the worse too but like the the mental bias that nothing ever changes is just factually untrue if you look at history and in fact like history is moving faster in a lot of ways than it ever has before so so there is a lot of momentum already and the idea that things never change is actually just wrong and like we do need to be pushing the change that is happening in the direction we want to go because like you mentioned like heading towards something you want to versus just walking away from something you don't like and like 
there's very few people who are like extremely happy with society the way it is right now. And like the two groups of people who are the most unhappy with it are like leftists and like some far right extremists. And like, we all want to walk away from what's going on right now, but we want to walk in like very different directions. So yeah, like that, that is happening already and things don't stay the same. They will never stay the same. So yeah, we, we want to be dreaming of what the better future is so that we're pushing the change in the direction we want it to go in. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too far into this right now because I know we're going to talk about patriarchy later, but I was actually talking with my partner the other day about this because I was feeling kind of low and feeling kind of like, oh God, you know, we can't get anyone to do anything and <laughs> the climate is collapsing and all of that. But I was just thinking about how much change has happened already in my lifetime and like patriarchy and things like that, right? So like women's um, liberation, I guess, I think has advanced a lot in the past century. And then now, you know, the whole concept of gender is being con called into question and, and sex, actually, biological sex is being called into question. And um, I think young people today growing up will hopefully be a lot more uh, compassionate and understanding um, and, you know, accepting and, and loving of people who, you know, are, are different than themselves. And I feel like, as that kind of starts to break down, you know, like patriarchy is kind of like the original othering, right? And if 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 gender based uh, discrimination is called into question, then I think uh, a lot of other discriminations are going to be called into question. And if othering in general is called into question, then like capitalism is going to be called into question. Um, and so I don't know, I, I do have kind of hope that things are moving, or they will start to move fairly quickly with the, the younger generation. So yeah, it, it, it can almost be gauche to like recognize that things have gotten better, because then you're downplaying all the things that we still need to mm -hmm. do. But it's, yeah, I think it's actually important to do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's a really good example of something like over the last hundred years with stuff like suffrage, but then also even within the last handful of years, the way that common sense has changed, at least among mm -hmm. like uh, large peer groups, yeah, if not I across think the, the entirety of society. stuff in like the recent decades is one of the biggest ones. Like when I was in high school versus like what I hear about people who are going to the same high school I went to now, like uh, 15 mm -hmm. years later, the culture is like completely different. And if I had been born 15 years later, I would have had like a very different experience growing up as like a gay kid in a small city that's pretty conservative still. But like, yeah, there's, there is actually like a lot of difference already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, when I was in school, people were making you know, like homophobic jokes. And now people would be really like called out or, or shamed for, for doing that, you know. Um, and as well, I, I think like issues around consent and, and things like that are also being brought into the open um, issues around mental health. So, you know, anyway, there, there's ha there has been a lot of progress. And I think it's important. It is important to recognize that. Um, I think Angela Davis actually said this, that, you know, you never really win the revolutions you think you're fighting, right? You never really win exactly what you're fighting for, but you do create change and you have to actually um, honor that and recognize that. Uh, I think a, a big part of uh, our task is also to kind of set things up for the next generation and, and understand that it's not going to be us, like it's not all us, uh, all on us to, to make all these changes, but to actually uh, set things up so that, you know, younger people can can carry that torch forward and then make more and more change in the future. Yeah. Yes. 
So we've actually never read Bookshin. I actually have Bookshin's uh, The Ecology of Freedom up on my shelf. been meaning to, to read that for quite a while. Um, but you uh, identify as social ecologists. We're pretty sure that we are social ecologists in the sense that we, you know, we buy a lot of, uh, of what we hear it's about. So just wondering what this means to you. Uh, how did you come to it? And how do you actually practice it in your daily lives? Yeah, the way that we became, I don't know, how strongly do you identify as, as a social ecologist? Oh, or, yeah, yeah. One of the things I wrote was that I don't identify as like, I, I don't tend to say I'm an ex, like I probably wouldn't even be like, I'm a library socialist. It just, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't talk that way. And like, I haven't even read that much book chin. I read post-scarcity anarchism a bunch of years ago. And I've read things like quotes and bits and chunks from people and Sean's explained a bunch to me recently from the stuff he's read uh, and like my experience of social ecology proper has been in the f past few years just like hearing takes from it and being like oh yeah that is kind of like what I already thought and it like gives better language to it and Thank you for explaining that to me, Sean. That's great. <laughs> Part of the reason I've got an affinity for for Bookchin, and there's still there's an ancient recording on the show from like 2014 where Aaron brings a Bookchin quote to me, and I'm like Bookchin, like book, like I'm just yeah, like really fixated name. on his name. I'm like, what kind of name is that? Yeah. Um, but it kept on happening that we talk about stuff on the show, and we're trying to sort of figure out the way that these different because uh, one of the things that we're fascinated with, and especially earlier on in the show, is the way that discourses seemingly contradict each other. But if you really sort of pull it apart, you're like, oh, and everyone sort of means the same general territory there. So we're trying to like figure out ways to describe politics in ways that decreases the amount of um, very sort of vicious online confrontation that we were seeing. So this is like a big focus of ours five years ago. And in trying to describe these things, we kept on running into examples where uh, either one of us would recognize or someone from the audience would tell us like, oh, you're describing something like here's a bookchin quote where he says that same thing. And that happened enough time that I was like, okay, maybe there's something to you this guy. This, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but also in just like meeting other social ecologists and talking about issues, uh, I've just gotten a lot of clarity from it um, in ways of processing some of my own thoughts on like complex issues and also learning things. Like I think it's just such a foundational idea around social ecology is the idea that the misuse of power and like the injustices of our society have a commonality, which is the idea of hierarchy, which is like, mm. for example, um, in patriarchal relations and racism and in the ecological crisis, within all of those contexts, you can think of this idea that someone has that they are above something and that they have the right to sort of do what they want with it or to abuse it um, or that it has to listen to them or it's controlled by them. Um, and that's sort of like, you know, racial hierarchy, gender hierarchy, or the hierarchy of humankind over the ecosystem. They all have that commonality, that sort of connected lens. Um, and so where that comes from in social ecology is like Bookchin was raised uh, by the Communist Party in New York. He was basically like a tanky uh, Stalinist. <laughs> Um, and eventually at one point decided like, well, actually, screw this. I've had to change my position on these international issues so many times based on the intel that's coming out of Russia to our little like communist cell um, that I think this whole thing's maybe just sort of bullshit. So I'm going to become an anarchist instead. So he's an anarchist for a long time and became really fixated on the idea of hierarchy, which is like foundational to anarchism um, and ecology. And then as he got 
older just sort of he then rejected anarchism he became what he called the communalist and blah 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 and that story is so fascinating to me and like when i found that story is like when i was like i love this guy like i love this story Mm -hmm. like i love how complex this is it wasn't like Bookchin came out of the womb and he's like, wow, <laughs> little <Yeah. laughs> tiny crying baby. It was like <laughs> the root of the social crisis and the root of the environmental crisis. It's the same crisis. It's like, no, it was a developmental process. It took decades. It was an unfinished project. Um, and it doesn't reject radical politics, but it also doesn't reject people's common experience. It doesn't reject wholly different political perspectives by well it sort of does actually uh, <laughs> it rejects really interesting choices of political perspectives to reject entirely at least if you're following bookchin as the the guide post of it like yeah, he's re- pretty cantankerous and like to pick <laughs> fights with people <laughs> so like he picked fights with people who he picked fights with people who thought that humanity as a whole was to blame for the ecological crisis he's like you're blaming poor kids in harlem the same as the ceos of exxon mobile that's bullshit it's a good line to draw he was right and he another one is he's like oh these people are really committed to the revolution uh, you know these people are really com- committed to these values and these people just like it as an aesthetic fixation they're lifestyleists and we all sort of agree that's not his best work uh, <laughs> uh but also sort of a good point um <laughs> In some contexts, mm-hmm. but uh, in any case, like social ecology is about recognizing co- the connections between ecology um, and s- social relations um, and building a directly democratic society that enfranchises people and solves all of the problems of uh, oppression in the world through a process of trying really hard and doing the right thing mm-hmm. and analyzing correctly. Mm-hmm. It's it's good. I like it. I like it. And I like the writing that I've read on it. Like there's this great book, uh, Social Ecology and Social Change. It's a collection of a bunch of different social ecologist authors. Um, we've had this um, social ecologist Adam Krauss on our show. He wrote this book, The Revolution Will Be Hilarious, <laughs> which is like one of the best pieces of political writing I've ever read. That sounds Everything great. in this uh, little milieu It's one I of my favorite love. episodes too. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't feel super comfortable speaking that directly on social ecology. Cause again, I haven't read that much about it, but, uh, we're going to be doing a series on it pretty soon. Oh, nice. So I think after that, I'll have a better answer. Beautiful. Yeah, no, I like that. I, I haven't done a lot of reading on it either, but I'd like to become more well-versed. Um, cause we talk a lot on the show about how like othering is so central to, you know, colonialism, capitalism, et cetera, and that all of the oppressive systems that we're fighting also exist within us. And in order to kind of understand how you can build such a terrible society, you have to understand the root of why people other other people, like why unjust hierarchies like that are developed. So yeah, I think it's just really poignant to talk about, you know, the roots of these crises being the same, essentially. And I also like talking about ecology, because I feel like there's a lot of leftist traditions that talk about building a future that only kind of talk briefly about the ecology or they just say oh once we've you know nationalized everything then that'll just be good for the environment but don't really think much further about like how we could actually live in reciprocity with our environments um and so yeah i like that it brings that into discussion also so i wanted to talk about library socialism which we both love. So if anyone has not listened to these episodes, please go listen to Seriously Wrong's uh, trilogy of episodes 
on library socialism. Spend uh, six hours with the boys. Yes, yes, <laughs> at least. It's pretty long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, uh, obviously we're not going to like die, you know, go through all of that today, but I guess, uh, could you maybe briefly describe the idea and how you came up with it and, and why you're kind of into this library metaphor for this future potential world we could live in? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, I'll talk a bit first about how we came up with it because like you can actually kind of hear the primary development of the idea happening in real time in that first episode because prior to the first recording we did for library socialism and usufruct we had like tossed the idea out in one or two episodes like the words just kind of fell together and we were like oh yeah that sounds cool and it has a cool intuitive meaning to it and like we used it in a sketch in an episode where there was a society where there were a bunch of like libraries for everything ice cream library uh (laughs) and a a few things like that so then sean suggests let's do an episode on library socialism we'll talk about a bunch of our ideas um through the metaphor of libraries and just like we, we like to do these touchstone episodes sometimes where we kind of like bring everything back together and like do a kind of cumulation of what we've been talking about. We're like, let's do it through the, the idea of a library. And like, we just kind of start recording and we didn't really know where to start. So Sean started talking about his history with the pirate party and like online libraries. And I, so then I started talking about some of my developmental history and we just started relating all of these different things to the concept of libraries. And as we were going through it, we just realized there was so much more there than we even thought when we started recording. And it was just this really like powerful conversation where it felt like so many things were falling into place and like, oh, this makes so much sense. This is so great. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we just got like really, really excited about it and like wanted to do more episodes after just that one. But yeah, if you you listen to that first episode, like the non-sketch parts, the main bones of the episode, that conversation is like basically when we were figuring out what we were talking about. (laughs) That's awesome. The thing that really like got me super jazzed in that recording um and like we'd been sort of tossing around these ideas for a while and there's a few like we're already fans of libraries um and we'd already been thinking about a lot of things that ended up sort of being incorporated in it but the realization that okay so like uh the foundational wisdom of social ecology is it, it says okay we've got an ecological crisis and we've got a social crisis we've got a crisis of distribution and we've got a crisis of uh carrying capacity um and the two are connected. The two are more connected than people think. And libraries, out of all things in the universe, out of all human things that we know, tackle both these crises at the same time in a really interesting way. Because when you think about it, we've got a problem of carrying capacity. We're using too many resources. Mm-hmm. And we've got a problem with distribution where the resources aren't going to the right people. And the library premise says, rather than make one book for each person, Let's make enough books that everyone who's actually using the books can use the books at that time, but then they can return it and it can go to other people. Mm -hmm. So we're going to produce less books total than producing a book for each person. And so that like logic at the heart of libraries clicked in so strongly with the logic of the social crisis and the ecological crisis are connected Mm -hmm. that I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about what it meant. And then also that library socialism, like Aaron said, is such an intuitive 
beautiful little phrase that can connect to so many things. Yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, uh, I, I just want to jump in because like Sean's describing the lending library aspect of like modern libraries and how like that's ecological and like this sharing of property can allow us to produce less and stuff. But then there's also the information storage aspect of libraries. Like the most of the history of libraries isn't modern usufruct lending libraries like we have today. Most of the history of libraries is just like humanity trying best it can to hold on to what information it can from the past and building this constantly like growing body of knowledge that that we can all draw on and like mm -hmm. uh, utilize in in our day-to-day -day life and like part of uh what we've always talked about on the show is like the benefits of technology and the liberatory potential of technology and knowledge and information and understanding history in the past and libraries are so tied to like without libraries you don't really have written history you can have oral history but you don't have written history and they are both this like cumulative reservoir of human knowledge that keeps building on itself and also they're this signpost towards what we want to head to in the future and that they're making that information available to everyone mm -hmm. and and using that information to create the technological and social infrastructure to make uh, the the benefits of that shared common informational heritage that we have available to everyone so it's exactly what we want to do on a smaller scale. It's it's taking everything that humanity has produced and giving it back to humanity. And we're saying, let's do a lot more of that. Let's do that on a much bigger scale. Let's do that for everything that we can do that for. And another connection to like the social ecological sphere is um, in uh, Bookchin's Post-Scarcity Anarchism, he talks about um, scarcity and artificial scarcity um, and how historically we used to have to endure scarcity. You have a bad season, not enough food has been harvested, so everyone has to, to make do with less uh, for that season and, and eat less. But now in, in the modern day or in, in his modern day, which is the 70s, but still true now, um, we have the capacity to always provide enough for everyone in fact more than enough for everyone so there has to be legal systems in place like intellectual property or the, the destruction of grocery food after it hasn't been sold in order to enforce the scarcity like the the, the reality is that we have a type of abundance that's untapped and the scarcity is enforced so taking that same idea of like the example of the grocery store throwing away all their unused food and saying the same for just to take an extreme example, a yacht. We've got enough yachts for everyone in the world to take yacht rides, take the yacht out for an old spin. It's we got enough yachts like we probably don't need to make another yacht for the rest of human history. We can just repair the existing fleet like mm -hmm. so the, this actually existing abundance of yachts is being artificially held back through institutions of uh, the idea, the ideology of private property, but also the legal institutions that protect it. Um, and there's an alternative that we could imagine to say, like, well, if everyone needs boats part of the time, maybe we can distribute these boats like a library would. Hence, library socialism and its connections to social ecology, 
something that we're thinking about and developing actively. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it is intuitive in that today the the idea of the sharing economy has been kind of co-opted by Uber or it's just kind of like the gig economy has kind of uh, appropriated that term. But when I was in high school or even starting university, um, I was really into like environmental blogs and things like that. And there was a ton of people talking about the sharing economy uh, which was really more akin to what you guys are talking about here in that um, instead of creating new things, we just we use the abundance of things that we already have, uh, but we share them more, right? And we're, we're already seeing kind of the buds of this stuff happening. Like in Toronto, for example, um, there's already places where you don't have to buy tools, like you just rent the tools and then you bring them back. Um, or there's uh, bike repair shops uh, popping up where you don't actually, you know, go in and pay someone to do it or, or whatever. Uh, you go in and they show you how to do it for free. Um, and then you fix your bike yourself for free kind of thing. So now you have that knowledge that you can carry forward and then fix other people's bikes or whatever. I don't know. But we're already kind of seeing the buds of this kind of movement in that direction. So, um, yeah. And of course, it does seem. <laughs> completely intuitive. So yes, I guess just for anyone who doesn't know what library socialism is, it's kind of this idea that in the future, things would be kind of run like this, like we would, um, we wouldn't be producing as much, we would be sharing more things and everyone would have access to information for, f for free, of course. And then you have uh, the the idea of the irreducible minimum where nobody falls below a certain life standard. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's like a sort of basic socialist idea, although it's not the phrase irreducible mini minimum comes from Bookchin. Um, and I, we became sort of interested in that phrase around you hear a lot of people say like, oh, you know, socialists, they want everything to be equal, everyone to be equally tall, everyone to be equally strong, everyone to get equal sized portions of food and it's like that's not really what we're all about we're all about making sure people don't fall below a certain level that they need um and then again we talk about that for a while and then we discover oh okay bookchin had a phrase for that mm -hmm. great i guess i'm a social ecologist <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely so yeah we really we really love the idea we love that um you're you know spending time thinking about this because i think that kind of the, mo the more common vision for the future that i tend to hear from leftists is this idea that, you know, yeah, well, I guess we'll have uh, socialism at the state level, everyone will have a guaranteed job, you'll have housing and whatever, you'll go to work for your 40 hours per week, you'll get your labor vouchers and your rations and, and whatever. I'm not sure if that would be really necessarily in line with environmental flourishing, but um, it's kind of kind of like the standard thing people tend to put forward right so yeah we we just really love that you're you're coming coming forward with something that's like hopeful and exciting and also intuitive so just wondering why you think it is that I, I feel like there are a few people who are actually coming up with kind of uh, new or dynamic or kind of emergent ideas for our post-capitalist future and wondering what your thoughts on that I think part of it is that um the exercise, the public exercise of imagination is discouraged uh, from childhood mm -hmm. for all of us, like that there's something goofy about it or silly. And I think that it is true, like, 
us having the confidence to say this for the first time and figure it out came at the end of 150 plus episodes of us saying stuff like this Mm -hmm. and just like sort of going for it. Um, And I think sometimes we did come off sort of like dumb or naive or like, and it took risking that naivety in order to like, this is how I feel is like that we were risking naivety and then eventually we risked naivety in a way we're like, Oh, this is really good. I really like this. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think part of the, part of it's the, I think the fear of, being seen as like dumb or naive and stuff makes people stay away from it. And there's also like, there's the historical debates around like utopianism and materialism Mm -hmm. and and stuff like that, which I think hang over people a lot. Again, sort of people who don't want to look naive, who want to be cool. And like, Mm -hmm. it's, it's a risk. It's a riskier territory than just criticizing. I think not that we're like brave. I think like we are sort of idiots. Like (laughs) we're not, actually I shouldn't speak for Aaron. He's very smart. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but like it, I think there's a, there's a risk in that territory. Like, mm-hmm. um, but also I don't want to say like, we're, we're not like the lone people who have like broken this territory. There's uh-huh. a lot of people who are doing this now in a new way, mm-hmm. um, in a way that I hadn't seen when I first got involved in politics, but like the amount of utopia, like social ecology has been committed to utopian thought for decades. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of them, mm-hmm. um, until pretty recently, but like you can see like current affairs magazine and Jacobin, they're putting stuff out there. That's like very sort of utopian, like a year off every seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's an increased appetite for this. And I think we're just sort of figuring out, um, on the left, how we want to handle this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's true that it is a risky territory. And um, yeah, I, I think also kind of our social media landscape incentivizes people to, to be super critical and to be, to, to jump on one another, to be like, that's ridiculous. We have to stick to this tried and true materialism or, or whatever. Um, but as you said, we, we need both, right? Yeah. Tried. Tried. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, So library socialism um, seems to denote mostly an economic system in a sense, right? It's a system, I guess, of distribution of goods and uh, one that deals a bit with uh, production or kind of minimizing production. So wondering, are there ways that you think that this could intersect with animal liberation? As we are on an animal liberation show, I wanted to ask you that. Uh, Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, um, if animal liberation has any ethical value in it, which I think it does, then library socialism necessarily has to interact with it. Mm -hmm. That's the way I see library socialism. Uh, You can't leave injustices not investigated at the very least. Um, And with our current like food, so neither Aaron nor myself are vegan or vegetarian, but I need to acknowledge like our relationship with animals as a species when it comes to eating food is a dysfunctional one. Mm -hmm. And I would even say that it makes humankind a lot more monstrous than we need to be. Like we could even keep eating meat. We could even keep eating dairy and find ways to be a lot less monstrous um, in ways that we definitely aren't doing. Um, And like also part of this too, and a, a connection here, a natural connection is between sort of social ecology and library socialism and this stuff um, is that we're critical of the idea of property 
of the abuse of property, the destruction of property, the idea that you, well, this is my chair so I can destroy it. It's a basic idea of like standard property rights. That idea is part of the justification that's used to mistreat animals. Uh, it's like this animal belongs to me. I'm going to use it for meat. So I'm going, I have the right to destroy it. I have the right to deprive it of like the ability to move around and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there, there are areas here to investigate and elaborate on and that I would actually really welcome vegan perspectives and like people who are uh, who think a lot about this stuff um, mm -hmm. in like elaborating on where those commonalities are. And I think just like it has to be so I've confessed I'm not a vegan, but it has to be part of the picture. Um, and it has to be something that like people who aren't vegans have to be willing to like talk about and be challenged on. Because you just can't deny that the hum humanity's treatment of animals makes us monstrous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's um, if you Google social ecology and animal liberation, which I did when I read this question, because I was like, does social ecology intersect with it? What is it? There's an article on like the Institute for Social Ecology that's like, it's pretty bad, actually. Like he compares animal liberation people to Nazis at oh. one point. Um, th there's there's some good stuff in there too, and like the <laughs> like <laughs> his his ending point is like is talking about again like human domination over nature and how we need to have mutually beneficial relationships with nature. But there is an element of social ecology that is that conflicts with some of what I hear in. Uh, vegan discourse online and stuff, which is like social ecology has a kind of, it draws a kind of line in the sand at humans and saying that we're very different from the rest of nature because of our like self-reflective capabilities. And just like, I don't think we have anything that animals don't have, but we have a whole lot more of certain things. And it gives us a kind of unique position and a unique responsibility in the world and like i think there there's a bit of tension there and that's what this guy who obviously had a chip on his shoulder who wrote this article was was it's, getting at uh peter studemeyer uh who's got some great writings on other things i just know that he wrote that um and i think part of where that comes from too is in in drawing that distinction between uh you know human animals and non-human animals um intentionally part of that comes from the way that rhetoric of rhetoric of being animals is used in the process of um, like othering mm -hmm. or ideas of hierarchy and that when comparisons between animals and like for example you know someone who would compare slavery to um eating meat like carnism to slavery or, or the holocaust is when you hear yeah in those in those cases i get the sort of like i'm not sure i want to make those exactly the same like i'm mm -hmm. not sure like so that's Part of where I think these arguments come from in that social ecology is explicitly sort of like a humanist um, school of thought. Um, and it's been forged in the fires of arguments with anti-humanists, uh, like anti-humanist humanists, I guess, like who point out that the, the ideology of humanism has been used to exclude humans from the role of human and reduce them to animals. So like all of that weird history, I think, is, is caught into this. But there's also I should... In defense of social ecology, there's also a second article responding to that, yeah, <laughs> responding and criticizing to the first article from a like 
animal liberation, social ecological perspective. Mm-hmm. What's what's the name of that article? Uh, it's on the Ecologist. I don't know if you Google, they both come up. If you Google social ecology, animal liberation, they're like the two articles. Yeah, yeah, it's on the Ecologist, and it's written by the Symbiosis Research Group, which is an active sort of cell of uh, social ecology um, aligned activists. Yeah, uh, but I like I think whatever your perspective is on like eating meat like i think we should all be able to agree that torturing animals is wrong and like even if it makes meat way more expensive to make laws that you have to not torture animals uh that is like that's that should be instituted today like we we all know that's wrong and like people get aghast at the idea of hearing like someone hurt their dog or their cat or the animals that we choose to offer our empathy towards but then like we want to look away when you see the factory farming videos and like the same empathy response that would happen when you see the pain on the faces of like pigs and cows and the animals that we don't usually offer empathy to um so like yeah it's it's a it's a really like destructive and like morally degrading system our like industrial meat production Mm -hmm. right now and uh like that is what i see as like the most important like fight right now uh on the like front of animal liberation is like we need to stop torturing animals Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) i I will agree with that um yeah but i I think there could be a, a lot of intersections um i know there's a lot of like anarchist writers who talk about you know anarchy is the negation of archy and there's a lot of anarchist writers that also talk a lot about animal liberation and talk about um you know speciesism or you know human anthropocentrism as another form of uh hierarchy afco actually has an amazing book called aphorism and she talks about how um you know, this idea of animalization or dehumanization is used to other humans, right? So like black people, she talks about indigenous people or whatever, who are uh, animalized and dehumanized and kind of the lower you go on the human animal scale, the the more society deems it all right to strip you of your rights or abuse you or whatnot. And so animals are obviously at the, at the bottom of the scale, but at the top of the scale is like the ideal white, cis, straight, able-bodied man, um, and kind of the further you get away from that ideal, um, including kind of, including non-human beings, the more like people won't have that empathy response, I suppose, for you. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there's there could be a lot of intersection. Um, and I mean, I don't imagine library socialism, like you wouldn't like go and like rent a cow to slaughter or something like that. Um, I'm not sure exactly, but there was an interesting, and I, I don't remember the details, but in one of, in our Facebook group, someone had posted a really detailed connection between, um, the way that we like produce, uh, I think they were talking more about crops and stuff, but connections between sort of some of the ideas around uh, like library socialism and the idea of not destroying things and passing things on and sort of stuff being connected to like food production and agriculture. Um, And it was really interesting. I just can't remember the wording and and details, but these are discussions I think that like should be actively Mm -hmm. ongoing Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to both. I mean, 
like leftist politics broadly, but also in specific, like library socialism and mm -hmm. social ecology. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So as well as we are settlers on stolen land, can you think of ways in which library socialism could contribute to decolonization? Uh, yeah, this is something that I like want to learn more about. Like we haven't done our episode on decolonization yet on colonialism we've been talking about it as something we want to do like on the horizon so i don't like I, I don't have this down in talking about this and it's also something that i think we want to be talking to first nations people indigenous people uh about rather than saying like oh this is how library social socialism is decolonializing and like this mm -hmm. like I, I decolonization is like absolutely essential and as Sean was saying for animal liberation like if something is like moral and essential like library socialism has to interact with it and we want it to interact with it mm -hmm. um, but like on like a smaller more granular level when you mentioned colonial relations to the land it does like bring to mind again the social ecological idea that part of the problem here is that we see the land as something to be dominated and used up for our own purposes and that i feel like is essential to the colonial mindset this like going out into the world and conquering it bringing it under heel for the crown for like the great British empire or French empire, whatever uh, white colonial empire you're bringing the land under heel for. And, and justifying it with this natural, this faux naturalism of like, Oh, it's just like, it's just like in nature, the crabs go from land to land enslaving people. <laughs> the, the crabs plant their flag. down. It's just like nature. But what they're actually doing is justifying their own, monstrous behavior by finding things in nature that kind of remind them of it and they're like that lion's mm -hmm. literally a king kings are part of nature mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah so i feel like that that like that core aspect of colonial thinking is like specifically argued against or like is the the opposite is put forward by social ecology and like by library socialism so i think i think there's some really interesting stuff there to talk about but i don't i don't have a whole lot to go into on that right now. Mm -hmm. I think with um, when thinking about how library socialism should interact with the history of colonialism and in contributing to um, the future of this, it occurred to me, I was like, it's both, it would both be an issue if library socialism was somehow representative of decolonization, but it would also be a problem if library socialism was completely like, oh, that's not our territory at all. Like we, we step out of it because there's a responsibility that comes with being a beneficiary of this historical system for like us as individuals. Mm -hmm. um, it's like we live in we live in unceded territory, um, Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh land um, in Vancouver. We need to, as utopians, not just as library socialists, but as people who are utopians, be welcoming of um, utopias that come from different sort of like positionalities or that are rooted in different experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that like the integration of indigenous utopianism into the utopian project is like necessary um, and useful. From my reading, this stuff is contested and I don't see like, I don't yet know that we've cracked the code of exactly everything that's it's going to take to address these like historical injustices. But I think there is some 
common ground to be found between the way that we're talking about criticizing property um, and the way that property has this historical record of, uh, you know, property relations that we're criticizing also historically has been used as a justification to dispossess people. Um, There's, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. common ground to be like felt out here. Um, But I, uh, the, the topic makes me more nervous than the average topic because it's important to me. And I, haven't read as many books on it as I've read on other things, mm-hmm. just to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, uh, well, I'm excited for your upcoming decolonization uh, podcast. So yeah, we just did one recently on on decolonization and um, uh, an, indige- an indigenous comrade and, and I kind of defined decolonization as learning to live in the indigenous nations that we inhabit. Um, and meaning learning to live in reciprocity with our environments and actually, um, uh, honor the treaties, which were sharing treaties uh, initially. Um, obviously, you're in unceded territory, but but yeah, I think that there's there's a lot of ways that it could intersect. I mean, I think that the ways in which it could help um, our relations with the land. I mean, I th- I think that it could help us move towards greater reciprocity with the earth without also. I mean. I, whenever I talk about reciprocity with the earth, everyone always t- says that I'm a primitivist and whatever, right? Um, but I think this idea of library socialism is something that can help us think about um, moving towards reciprocity with the land without necessarily canceling all of our technology, etc. And um, I don't know what people imagine when they they think about reciprocity, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, reciprocity with the land is like embedded in social ecology. It's one of like the main things like he they talk about first nature, which is kind of like the natural world aside from humans. And then there's human society, which is second nature. And then like the dialectical synthesis of the two being third nature being humans in a reciprocal relationship with the rest of nature and a mutually beneficial relationship that is sustainable and can create a society that will last into the future. Like that's, that's one of the core parts of social ecology that, that there's reciprocity there. And even if it sounds a bit like um, floofy or something to say it that way, like reciprocity with the land. I don't know. I think people have like weird cynical Mm -hmm. takes when you say things like that sometimes, but it's actually really important. And to pick up on on what you're saying about technology, I think in order to have like a sustainable, large scale reciprocity with the land, uh, it it is a type of technology to know the way to do that, like to pass on even through like even if it was through an oral tradition, um, to pass on that information and be aware of like the way that our relationship with the land works, I think is sort of like a proto technology, but to scale that up to a global, global cultural thing, I think would have to involve the invention of like new technologies to keep us within the ecological limits. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we're not against primitivists. We're sort of the opposite, but we agree (laughs) with them Mm -hmm. about not destroying the planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you see library socialism intersecting with uh, anti-racist or feminist work as well? Uh, When we did the second episode 
in the series on the irreducible minimum, I kind of stumbled into a framing for this stuff that I really like because we were talking about um, meeting people's needs and like the irreducible minimum should be that people have their needs met. But like a lot of the time when people think about needs, they start to get like really Scrooge about it. And they're like, Oh, what, what do pe- they need food and shelter and clothing. And it's like, mm-hmm. if you're talking about need, for bare survival, yeah, you're right. We need like a little box, maybe a blanket, a few rags to put on, and some gruel. Like there, you have your basic needs in quotes taken care of. But like we all know that that's not a life worth living, and it's actually not a life where you're getting your needs met because we have needs that aren't just base survival needs. We have needs for like affection and equality and uh, effectiveness in the world and respect and dignity. And like a lot of those needs are the needs that have been systematically denied to women and to racial minorities in like patriarchal white supremacist societies. So like if we want to create a society where people are getting their needs met and if we understand that like dignity and equality and compassion are human needs and that we all need to experience these things from others in the environment in order to be psychologically healthy and to have good fulfilling lives in society, then the project of meeting people's needs like necessarily has to start with addressing people whose needs are being systematically denied to them. So like, to me, being anti-racist or being a feminist is just part of meeting people's needs and starting where the problem's at. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, I mean, I assume, <laughs> I assume, I mean, you, you've talked about abolishing prisons or whatnot. So I assume, you know, al- already getting rid of the prison industrial complex would be a huge move uh, in anti- anti-racist movement. Absolutely. Yeah. And we talked about reparations, too, in the in the meeting people's needs episode, just as like a way of like, there's a lot of needs you could think of it. It'll meet a lot of people's uh, base needs because money can buy food, shelter, clothing, education, all those things. But it also meets a need for like forgiveness and recognition of past wrongs Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I haven't thought and talked about reparations a lot, but it did come up in that context as like being a way to, uh, hit multiple birds with one star. I just read vegan <laughs> podcast. Bad, <laughs> bad, bad metaphor. <laughs> but like to, to do two things at once and to meet uh, uh, people's needs in both of those ways. <laughs> yeah, bringing your animal killing metaphors into. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ask a bit about, uh, this idea of like transition, um, if you've given a lot of thought to how do we move forward uh, towards this this beautiful vision? Have you thought a lot about kind of the, this idea of the transition uh, process? Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> uh, when it, I mean, when it comes to transition from one society to another different type of society, that's like really, really different. So if we're assuming that in order to redeem this world, we're going to have to make some really, really deep radical changes at the root. Uh, well, we've been doing a little bit of a historical 
review of some like historical revolutions. It's one of the things that we've been studying recently to sort of better understand this um, of how we might transition and what the record's like. Um, still uh, very early on in our studying and have to admit we didn't start already knowing everything about revolution. What? However, uh, something that I we figured out, and this is only, it only takes one good revolutionary study to figure this out, is revolutions themselves, even the most revolutionary of revolutions, doesn't happen as a thunderclap. It doesn't happen in a moment where you're walking down the street and then you hear a little trumpet in the distance and people are like, oh, we've got a new government now. And then they all go to the town square and kick the old king and then it's done. It's like it doesn't it like it's never worked like that. There's never been a revolution that happens like that. Um, revolutions, even in the most revolutionary of revolutions, which I don't think is the type of revolution we're going to see in the future, but I'll get into that in a second. Even in the most revolutionary of revolutions, it takes uh, like years and years of uh, tension building um, and planning and it failed attempts and all that sort of stuff. And then when the revolution actually happens, there's usually multiple revolutions that happen. There's a revolution, counter-revolution, counter-counter-revolution. Mm-hmm. And that whole process takes decades. And wherever it ends up, fingers crossed, you keep some of the good parts. Revo- even revolution itself doesn't happen as a thunderclap. Um, And I think a lot of people uh, sort of talk about politics that way, like, oh, you can't. And there's this sort of reform versus revolution thing. And it's sort of a critique of social democratic systems under capitalism. I think there's some validity to that critique. But the implicit side of this angle is that there's only two options. There's either these very like sort of tepid reforms, the types of reforms that we associate with literal public liars, politicians (laughs) who are famous for their enormous lies um, on one hand, that you have to go trust these liars or you have to wait for this magical moment where everything changes. Mm. And that uh, that choice is, is dumb. It doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. I hate... That, that that choice isn't wise. <laughs> that choice is unwise <laughs> to reduce it to that. Um, so like... I think the process towards revolutionary library socialism, which involves a fundamental challenge to the institution of private property and the way that we view private property, it's a very sort of fundamental challenge, I think, very radical and hard to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes a few different pieces. Um, and actually, I think there's really only three main pieces that I've identified um, that will be needed or that actually happen in practice. There's the narrative realm. There's talking about the issues, having conversations like this um, or and uh, theorizing, theory building, propagandizing, having conversations with people, organizing conversations, moving people to action through a persuasive conversation is also part of that. There's also the sort of prefiguration or the creation of institutions, the creations of organizations that do things that need to be done. And whether that's to amplify the spread of information or to provide for people's basic needs not being met by the system, that's the second pillar. And the third pillar is um, I hate to use the word entryism. I just have find it hard to pin down what I'm talking about in a single word. It's any time that you're using the resources of existing institutions, existing bodies of resources, and recognizing where the resources are, getting a hold of them, and then using them to bring about political change, either through through something like you could have a a, a, a state body take on providing for people in need on an ongoing basis like that could be the outcome one of the revolutionary steps within something Um, or it could be like liquidating the assets of an organization and then putting that all towards training people to have skills and something or whatever like these three things interact in all these sort of interesting ways so like that's the i think the territory the landscape 
that the revolution will take place on the inevitable glorious revolution towards library socialism which we're all counting on mm-hmm. um <laughs> that's the sort of landscape and from that landscape we can pull together some like interesting combinations of like well these resources came from here we use it to build x institution and we spread this idea about it which helped it grow in membership but the exact form that the transition takes from this society to the next if i'm forced to make a prediction i'll say it's it's going to be really unpredictable it's not going to look like anything we've done before mm-hmm. but it's going to involve this territory that's my that's my thought on it and also i just want to say we can do this sweetie pie said this before we can do this sweetie pie we we can do this without being overly and unnecessarily antagonistic um not that antagonism isn't going to be part of this process um, in some cases but we can do it very straight up and be like these are our ideas they are good i'm going to organize against the bad ideas and just all above board this is what i'm doing mm-hmm. i think 99 percent of the time you can pull off quite a bit with being sweetie pie above board and all that stuff mm-hmm. you don't need the cloak and dagger stuff yeah. um, or like the weirdly antagonistic violence stuff totally <laughs> yeah i totally agree um yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that as well, that I think the, the revolution is going to be fairly um, piecemeal. It's going to be a, a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. And, you know, the ecological crisis is going to, uh, you know, drive a lot of change very quickly, I think, as well. And yeah, I, I like thinking about that kind of, uh, you know, three-pronged approach uh, and also the idea that it, it takes time and it's not just a thunderclap uh like private property you know private property first came into being i guess like you know shortly after the neolithic revolution where people were moving into towns and and living that way and and that that was kind of you know the dawn of private property was kind of the dawn of also patriarchy and all of this other horrible uh stuff that has plagued us for centuries and if you think about how long it's been and, you know, all of that time we've been chipping away at patriarchy, we've been, I don't, I guess we're not, we haven't really been chipping that much away uh, of private property, but, but I think that the time that we're in right now is, is really interesting in that, uh, I don't know, I mean, to, to have, even to have the United States talking more openly about social democracy or like democratic socialism um just the idea that more people kind of in the mainstream uh can also kind of maybe question this idea of private property um i think it's it's huge <laughs> like given how much time we've been living under uh the regimes of private property and as limited as as limited as social democracy is at least it's attempting to uh you know spread redistribute the wealth you know spread the wealth and make sure that people's needs are taken care of like of course yeah of course it's it's not going to uh solve the contradictions of capitalism but at least there's a lot of people now who are thinking in that sense that we actually do want to meet people's needs and the point of an economy is to meet people's needs not to just to to meet the bottom line of uh, the ceos of wall street or whatever so i i'm in full agreement with you i think also in in the west um or just basically like canada u.s um some European countries, the idea of having a thunderclap revolution is pretty unlikely. Uh, I, I feel like we're definitely up against the CIA, basically, and, and the military, which are, um, you know, hard, hard nuts to crack. Um, but I think that 
putting every foot forward that we can right now is important. And um, I don't think that we should be poo-pooing anyone's strategy unless it's it's like they're just overtly being destructive and, and harming the movement. But like, otherwise, I think that all of this kind of strange division and strange sectarianism uh, that's going on right now, I think is kind of pointless. And I think, um, what, what were the three pillars again? It was narrative work, narrative work, prefiguration, and uh, entry and appropriation. Right. Yeah, I think the prefiguration b- piece is is really important as well. I'm really glad you brought up the Neolithic Revolution before because it's something I was thinking about recently about the way that, I mean, at least the common historical theory goes is that through the Neolithic uh, Revolution and the existence of um, the 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 original existence of surplus like surplus um from farming became this sort of like thing that generated hierarchy patriarchy Mm -hmm. capitalism and so on Mm -hmm. um as this like very material historical event it it just brings to mind the possibility that and i and i i'm not saying this to be to be hopeless um or like deterministic but it brings forward the possibility that it might take some material structural changes in the world to create the preconditions for a lasting like sort of global socialist revolution Um, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't we should just wait for that to happen or something but the possibility is also that we're in that period and it's already underway and that through Mm -hmm. digital technology and replication um, the future of say like uh, people talking about 3d printers and there's just a variety of different technological capacities um, and possibilities that could create a situation where we have a new material base from which to uh, create a social revolution that has a lasting effect on society. I just want to draw that parallel between the potential future revolution and the Neolithic revolution. Because I think the next, the big revolution, you know, the, the revolution at the end of history that solves all the problems, um, <laughs> being sarcastic by saying that, but the, the, big, the big step forward that we'd actually really like to see might be connected to um, a technological material it, it, it might look more like the neolithic revolution than the french revolution that's what i'm saying it mm-hmm. might i don't know you're saying if we have an abundance like an uh, abundance of resources again i mean we already do have that are you are you saying the opposite that if we if resources become more scarce and like you know the ecology starts to fail then that will create the conditions for socialism yeah i was thinking of a sort of new of a new type of abundance like we've already got new types of abundances happening all the time but there might be like maybe say a a new plateau where there's all these different types of new abundance that create this condition that helps allow for and we look back in retrospect and we're like oh yeah that revolution happened in part because 10 years before everyone got everything they needed in this specific way yeah one way i think about this is the conversation that's going on uh, in the united states a bit around andrew yang's campaign and the universal basic income stuff and like um we already have enough of everything to provide enough for everyone we have that abundance but there is another level like sean saying there's like a hyper abundance uh potential in automation technology and as more and more things in the economy that currently exist in capitalism are becoming automated it is throwing a wrench in the traditional capitalist uh, uh, structure of wage earners and employers and then the wage earners buy the things that feed the companies that 
keep everything going. So mm -hmm. if you have all this automation and you have less and less need for wage earners, then you don't have people who have enough money to buy the things. And so the, the kind of capitalism patch to that, the way that Andrew Yang and other people want to patch capitalism is saying, let's give everyone a universal basic income. And like, I think that's a pretty good idea. I think Andrew Yang's version of it isn't great. And there's some good criticisms of it. But like that dynamic that's at play, the thing that he's talking about is an example of material conditions forcing a change on the economic system. And like that is happening right now. And like we do have a say in how that change happens, each of us, like no matter how small it is, and it's better when we're together. But like, yeah, the, the material conditions are forcing a type of change around this right now. And so there's an opportunity there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You're completely right. And that's only going to uh, get more and more, that contradiction is only going to get more and more acute as we go forward, as well as the ecological contradictions, which are also radicalizing a lot of people. And so, yeah, I, I, I agree completely that um, in a lot of ways, the material conditions will will force that change. Um, but also, yes, we have to be there with our, our utopian dreams for the future so that we can... Um, we know which direction we want to walk in when all of this kind of comes to a head. Yeah. And I don't mean to say that's necessarily going to happen or like yeah. that it's going to go one way or the other. It might go the opposite way. We might have less abundance than we've ever had in our lives. And we look back and we're like, oh, the first half of our lives, we had everything we wanted. And now we live in hell. Now we, we thought Twitter was hell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ecofascism is here. Yeah, ecofascism here. We're like, oh man, I thought I thought those Twitter hot takes were really unbearable, but this catastrophic climate change is far worse. Maybe that's the way history goes, and maybe through that we are able to uh, stitch something together to mount a resistance. I don't know. I'm just, mm -hmm. I, <laughs> I just I'm floating it as a possibility because I think it's interesting, and I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, so the last question I wanted to ask was about uh, patriarchy and kind of toxic masculinity. Uh, we've talked a lot about that on our show and talked about how actually capitalism is the logical extension of thousands of years of patriarchal dominant competitive modes of governance. So, uh, and we have, we've also talked about this idea of, you know, capital R revolution as having some fairly masculinist framings of social change. And so we're wondering what place do you see for conventional framings of masculinity in this kind of new utopian world? And how do we build uh, better masculinities and uh, kind of ensure that we aren't replicating patriarchal modes of thought or governance going forward? I mean, one thing that I'll say on the capital R revolution masculinity connection or like toxic masculinity connection is that when I was in the process of becoming more radicalized towards left-wing points of view, um, it was really, really noticeable to me that in discussions where I was trying to reason out loud with people, like have a discourse, and particularly, um, in most cases, men around socialism, around the history of revolution, there was this undercurrent where I felt like I was being called effeminate for saying, <laughs> like, obviously, violence is the last resort right like mm -hmm. maybe not the last resort but not the first resort i mean it's like you got plan d if there's plan a <laughs> b and c first like yeah, yeah <laughs> plan d maybe yeah but i mean plan a is like go for, go for it like try to get everyone on board and like try to and it, like there's 
there's reasons why people are critical of that sort of stuff. But my experience of it was just like these guys, these guys are implying that I'm woman like mm-hmm. because I don't want to kill a bunch of people mm-hmm. immediately. And like, so I had that experience of like being faced with that sort of like toxic masculinist revolutionary um, misogyny directed at me saying that I had failed manhood and I was like a woman with, (laughs) as a result of not wanting to do what they want to do. And that, that always stuck with me and left like a really bad taste in my mouth around the idea of uh, revolution. So I think here, like, I agree very deeply that this capital R revolution stuff veers into this sort of garbage. Mm -hmm. I really like trying to think through these things in ways that aren't, so class centered like the the idea that the the primary othering is actually patriarchy i think is a really like beneficial lens of analysis and i I think we can look at these things in a lot of different ways but i think it hurts our thinking when people really want to insist that like no we just have to focus on ending capitalism and then like all these other things will fall into place Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like that's true and it doesn't seem like that makes sense historically because capitalism is probably more recent than patriarchy mm-hmm. um like book like bookchin likes to premise the origins of this kind of hierarchy and domination in the domination of the old over the young um and i don't know too much about that idea i know it's in there and it's it's a brain tickler i don't think i agree with it but it's interesting yeah he talks about that in the ecology of freedom a bit gerontocracy as a potential origin of of hierarchy but i and i'm in the same position as you aaron where i'm like i don't think that's necessarily true but i like the possibilities it opens up and like thinking about different ways of like what what could be sort of the keystone yeah and and it also like places the 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 thing we need to change not just at you know we we have to storm the state house and take over the machine and start running it in favor of the proletariat and and then everything else will fall into place like that again like the the idea that we have to like address uh patriarchy uh, racism homophobia, transphobia, uh, gerontocracy to the extent that that's an issue, but just like these, these, these feelings of superiority and domination over one another, this ideology that there are some people who are more human, more deserving, more higher up on the hierarchy than others. Um, I, I, I think that takes also a lot of internal work and changing how you think about the world and how you relate to the world and that's also really really important as an addition to changing the material conditions and changing property relations which like absolutely 100 percent on board with but i just don't think that it will necessarily lead to the end of all domination to do that mm-hmm. and on on Framings of masculinity and, and healthy masculinities, it's a territory that, like, my instinct is to want to, stuff that's classified as, like, masculine and feminine, there's some arbitrary, there's some arbitrariness to it, and there's these things that, like, for example, when you think of nourishing, nourishing in the masculine sense and nourishing in the feminine sense, but there's this underlying, in people's performance of gender, so this is sort of an unfinished idea, but in people's 
ideas of gender, there's this underlying sort of like nourishing thing that fits different frames, different cultural frames of how our gender is supposed to nourish one another. And I think just like, I want to democratize masculinity in a sense. I want to like the good side of masculinity or like the positive, whatever version of non-toxic masculinity exists and non-toxic femininity. I want to democratize these things in their cultural validity. I want to be able to take what's liberatory about these ideas and distribute them freely and make them uh, make gender a playground and not a prison, a buffet, all you can eat, gender, um, <laughs> anything good you want. But the thing about gender roles and stuff in society is that to be human is to nourish. And I think that's the bottom. And I, I don't mean to, to say this to brush aside difference or, or like be like, oh, it's not feminism, it's humanism or something like that. But underlying it all, there's this nourishment, like humans are to nourish. Um, and we gender that in different weird ways, but humans nourish. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. And uh, that's what I think of when I think of health, healthy masculinity, but also um, healthy non-masculinity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because nourish, nourishing in our patriarchal society, like um, nourishing in the sense of you know, emotional, supportive nourishing is coded as feminine. And then everything that's coded as feminine is considered less than or embarrassing or, um, yeah, something that's, that's not to be respected. So, uh, yeah, I think kind of democratizing that or potentially thinking about, uh, masculinity in which people feel comfortable. Uh, yeah, people are made to feel comfortable in society for kind of buffet selecting, uh, different things that were at one point quoted as feminine and therefore, um, shameful or undesirable. Um, I think that's definitely important. And a, a way that nourishing takes a role within masculinity is this idea of like protection, but then also at the same time, like and providing, uh, provide, yeah, pro- providing and yeah. So providing is sort of nourishing. There's also a protection angle, but then also mothers protect their young, but we're not mm-hmm. like, oh, that mother's so masculine mm-hmm. in providing and protecting her kid. Like yeah. there's, mm-hmm. it's the whole, I get, you know, when people are like, this stuff's actually weird. I yeah. agree with them. It's, it's all sort of weird. Yeah. It is very weird. Um, and I like, Aaron, what you were saying about how, yeah, like if, if we keep our framing, if we only see the the division between people as the division between classes and we don't see um, other forms of othering as really, really central, then the approach that we take to fighting this is going to be, okay, well, there's the bad guys. Let's get a bunch of people and go get them. Uh, and then we'll create a better society. And and people don't think about what they have to do within themselves, right? Like people don't think about, um, well, like we can't really build a better world if we're all othering other people. Like capitalism wouldn't exist without othering um and this idea of dominance and things like that so we have to actually look inside of ourselves and and say like what is it that makes me other another person and i get kind of deep with this and say like well it's ego um and so we have to actually like all be addressing our egos if we're going to come together and build something better um but then people will be like oh that's new agey bullshit and, and whatnot but uh but i think it's really important yeah no it is it's just part of psychology that people have egos and like our egos protect us from like our emotional damage and our emotional issues and they like tell us we're great and that we're better than other people like that's that's what it does like it's a part of people's minds we know that uh Mm -hmm. so 
Yeah, like I, I think addressing addressing egos means like you got to do some like emotional archaeology, like Mister Rogers like to talk about. Get to the roots of these feelings that you have that you might not know exactly how to deal with, mm-hmm. uh, and then you will start to have a more functional relationship with the world because your ego can calm down a bit. It doesn't need to protect you as much anymore because you are a bit more at peace with yourself and with what's going on inside you. Yeah. How, how sick is that, that talking about your feelings isn't cool? Yeah. Right. You know? Well, it's, yeah, it's a patriarchy thing. It's coded as feminine and it's like it's yeah, but frivolous. It's so, and <laughs> so mm-hmm. I mean, it just, it just goes to show yet again, coolness is on the wrong side of history 100 <laughs> percent. the revolution will not be cool it, yeah no, it will be not cool at all he's so lame um but yeah no and, and i think that's a really great way to understand why a lot of these uh you know capital r revolution like revenge fantasy like violent moment of destruction of the other fantasy uh as people's first resort or as people as as what people want not even like oh this is a resort this is like i actually want this i want this revenge i want to uh destroy these people um i think it makes sense when you when you take all this in into consideration because um like under patriarchy like you know men can't talk about their feelings and the only uh acceptable emotion for men to really display is often anger or you know the only appropriate response to being harmed or being humiliated or being oppressed is uh, to just destroy the other person, right? So, and that's how you reclaim your your manhood and your manpower and your pride and whatever. Um, so I think these are things we have to address um, as well because uh, you talk a lot about, you know, the importance of means and ends and how to avoid actually becoming the oppressor. And it's, people think that there's no way that they could kind of replicate oppressive tendencies if they're, if they're on the good side, right? Like if they have noble intentions and they're fighting for the good of all, um, they really think that there's no way that they could, could replicate a lot of the violent shit that we have now. But I think it's all too easy. And I think that uh, our patriarchal system plays a big role in that. So. Yeah, absolutely. Like the desire to lash out and get violent is like totally on the one hand understandable because of what a like kind of horrifying hell world we live in in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And you want to find out who's responsible and hurt them. Like I think Mm -hmm. humans have that impulse a lot and men especially are encouraged to wallow in that, I guess, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Um, But I think it like it's important both to like not think of yourself as evil if you get mad and like want to hurt people because that's something that's a natural human response but also to want to contextualize that in like do a, a bigger picture of what's going on both in the world and inside you again and like why is this one particular emotional response to something horrifying the primary one that you always want to go to when you're thinking about the horrors of the world? Uh, Mm -hmm. Is there some other emotional responses you're having that you're avoiding? Like anger is usually covering up for other emotions that you don't want to deal with or think about. And I think like, yeah, doing that self-work is going to be a big part in like not becoming the oppressor in like 
whatever happens, because our plans for the future aren't going to go exactly as we planned. They never could. We're going to have to make stuff up on the fly forever, for like <laughs> forever. It's really important not just to have a good plan and a good place that you want to go to, but to be coming from a solid place within yourself, approaching all this stuff so that when you're making stuff up on the fly, you don't veer too far off in a direction that you would have thought impossible at the start of the journey kind mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Like whenever I talk about this, I feel like people probably think uh, that I never like get mad or angry or that like I don't feel super pissed and like want to see these CEOs go down and like all this stuff. Like, of course, I feel like that all the time. But I also want to make sure that like as I approach these projects for the future like I want to be coming from a place of I'm angry because people are being harmed and they're not getting what they need and my my main goal is one of you know love and compassion and making sure that they all get what they need um, that's my main drive right um, and so if like if someone is going to stand in the way of me helping people to get fed and whatever and try to attack me or attack those people then like yeah I probably will have to engage in some like violence or uh, conflict, but that's that's not that's not where I'm coming from initially. Like I, I'm not someone who just wants to do harm. I'm someone who wants to help. And if people will try to stop that and harm people, then like that that's another question. But um, I think people need to think more about like where they're really coming from. Yeah, <laughs> and I think but not having a sense of outrage at injustice, I think, is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Like if you. If you don't feel upset when you see wrong being done and like maybe that veers into the idea of like, I hate that guy. I want to punch him in the face. Maybe it doesn't. But if you don't have a sense of outrage at injustice, like that's an antisocial position to be in. There's like it's it's so healthy to see injustice and be like, I know which side I'm on. And I really don't like that guy or whatever. And maybe you want to punch him in the face. I, I like <laughs> um, but we all like I think a lot more people want to punch people in the face than actually do, and that's a good thing. And if if you're if you find yourself in the position that you're constantly wanting to punch everyone in the face, then like Aaron said, maybe the face punching is starting with you. Like maybe <laughs> yeah. the face punching is coming from your end. Maybe. And like it's not that everyone really deserves it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, important important <laughs> side notes on the Maybe they deserve it, but like punching them won't actually like help them to be a better person or to whatever, you know. That that's a dangerous you're that is a really important point. I'm really glad you said that. There's a lot yeah. of people who who deserve it, but the rest of us don't deserve them getting it. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really important point. Um, so yeah, I feel like that's a probably good point to leave off on. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add to the conversation before we wrap up? Uh, no, I just want to thank you for having us on and talking about this stuff. Cause this was a really, really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing. And also the, just the questions that you brought, it was very, uh, stimulating to look at library socialism through these lenses i like yeah, really yeah, we appreciate the opportunity like these are great questions oh. i was actually trying to write an article on library socialism for my own like writing practice yes and i was like looking at the blank page and i then went over to the other tab and started 
thinking about these questions and it was such a good prompt. It was like, this got me thinking about library socialism so much. So I, I really, really <laughs> appreciate the opportunity to talk about it and to, yeah. I, and thank you for supporting library socialism. Oh it's my really, really vindicating. Like we really, I really care about this stuff and to have you pick up on it. It's like meaningful to, to us. So yeah. I'm like your number one supporter. I, as soon as I found your podcast, it was just like, wow. Um, these people are talking about everything that I care about, everything that I've been thinking about. Um, and for me, it really was important. Like this might sound weird, but it, it's really important for me to hear like two men talking about this because I get a lot of flack in leftist spaces for kind of bringing these things up and people kind of, yeah, writing it off or, or make it seem just like effeminate and, and pointless. Um, and I was like, yes, yes, this is so amazing. So um, just thank you so much for what you guys are doing and look forward to uh, all your future podcasts. And thanks so much for coming on the show. This is great. Thank you. Usually, I actually feel bad that we're men. So that's awesome to hear. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I'm so thrilled that you are. I'm just like, yes, I love that men are saying this. It's so important that men are saying this. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, thanks, everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. She's cool. She's cool.